0: A colossal amount of potential savings is locked up in the silos of government. And that's what we are excited about unlocking. And there's an interesting dynamic in government compared to the private sector is that there are no competitive barriers to sharing. For the most part, a government probably only gains if another country adopts something that's working. There are lots of bright spots, lots of amazing things going on. And yet historically sharing between governments or between cities in the same country has been very poor. And I think some of that is to do with technical barriers. For example, there haven't been platforms that have made it easy. Sharing has often relied on word of mouth
1: This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host, Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world.
2: Hi, listeners. Sina Heikila here co-host of the Boundless Conversations podcast. Today we're talking to Robin Scott, co-founder and CEO of Apolitical, a global learning network for public servants. Apolitical's non-profit arm, the Apolitical Academy, also helps young and traditionally excluded people to run for political office. The team at Apolitical works passionately towards fixing the democracy flywheel on three levels, making politics a credible and trustworthy path, making the narrative around governments and civil servants one of talent and pride rather than necessary evil, and reviving interest among citizens in a democracy based on free-flowing and accurate information, where democracy is not traded in in return of quick fixes. In our conversation, we talk about how APolitical is working to facilitate peer learning among civil servants, creating a go-to marketplace for new ideas and innovations. Beyond that, we also explore emerging aggregation possibilities in the space of government platforms, such as the potential to aggregate private sector suppliers to let the best emerge across the space. We also talk about current tensions between the imagined global village and a trend of fragmentation and localism, and the fact that we won't find all solutions in any of these extremes. A very thought-worthy conversation about a sector that arguably has yet to reap all the benefits in a platform and ecosystems world. Here we go with Robin Scott.
1: Hello, everyone. So we are here today. I'm Simone Cicero, your usual host of the Banders Conversation podcast. Today, uh, as uh, often with my usual co-host, uh, Stina Heikila. Hello, everyone. And uh, today with us, uh, we have uh, Robin Scott, uh, founder of uh, Apolitico. And we are very glad to have you, Robin. It's great to be here. And thanks for your time. i uh, really looking forward to this amazing conversation, I'm sure. Uh, Sina, I will uh, lend the floor to you uh, and let you start this uh, conversation today.
2: Thank you. Yes, like Simona said, we're really excited to, to have you and I think our listeners as well. Uh, we have a lot of interest, uh, as we've mentioned to you, in public sector and how they are adopting the, the and adapting to the platform uh, revolution. So we hope to get some... Great insights from, from your experience, and we're happy that uh, Lisa Gansky, actually our co-founder and advisor, pointed us to your important work. So I wanted to just uh, start by asking you to tell our listeners in a sort of high level view uh, about apolitical, uh, what it is and what is the ecosystem that you are trying to mobilize around uh, your platform?
0: So Apolitical is a learning network for government. Um, one way of thinking about it by analogy is it's a little bit like Wikipedia in the sense of crowdsourced knowledge meets LinkedIn in the sense of a network and um, profiles for government. So we make it really easy for public servants anywhere in the world at any level of government to find and share what's working on common and similar problems and challenges, and to develop their skills on frontier issues and areas by taking short courses on the platform. So, we are, we're now used by more than 100,000 verified public servants and policymakers in 170 different countries. So essentially the ecosystem in which we work is the public sector, the people who work for public institutions of all sorts that can span multilateral organisations right down to local governments, cities, towns. Um, we take a, a very um, broad interpretation of government and indeed we think one of the most important roles we can play is actually connecting we sometimes refer to it as the Gov Stack, borrowed from the idea of a tech stack, but connecting people in government at the different levels, because often policies are are made in a national level but implemented at a local level, and there's not very good communications between those levels.
1: From my point of view, I would like to I would like to ask you a quick uh, follow-up uh, question to this. That is. Uh, mostly focused on understanding uh, how much uh, you see this uh, ecosystem really interacting in uh, peer-to-peer fashion versus being just there to learn. You know, to learn from someone that can tell their, them what to do or you know what new skills they need to develop. So, how much do you see this ecosystem really? Uh, I would say exchanging value between them. You know, the play the players in this ecosystem and. Uh, To some extent, my question is essentially how much you, when founding and creating this platform, have chosen to resonate with what was already happening uh, in the uh, the ecosystem in terms of the changes.
0: Just before getting into what we see people actually doing, I want to contextualize this question with quite astonishing um, piece of data, which is a calculation that McKinsey ran figuring out how much value would be unlocked or money would be saved if governments just did what was already working elsewhere in other cities or other countries so this is assuming no further innovation it's taking what exists and obviously that's done through should be done through a peer to peer modality if governments just implemented what existed what exists elsewhere best practice it would save up to 3.5 Trillion dollars a year. So, a colossal amount of potential savings is locked up in the silos of government, which are quite considerable. And that's what we are excited about unlocking. Um, And there's an interesting dynamic in government compared to the private sector is that there are no competitive barriers to sharing, you know, maybe on certain things like, you know, sensitive military areas. But for the most part, A government probably only gains if another country adopts something that's working. So you've got this really interesting dynamic where you've got the people in government, the people we serve, who've mostly come into the public sector wanting to make their society better. That is the primary motivation for most of the public servants we meet. You've got the fact that there are no legal barriers to sharing what's working. There are lots of bright spots, lots of amazing things going on. And yet, historically, sharing between governments or between cities in the same country um, has been very poor. And I think some of, some of that is to do with technical barriers. For example, there haven't been platforms that have made it easy. Sharing has often relied on word of mouth and you know, taking taking trips to other countries to see on the ground what's working, which isn't particularly scalable or comprehensive. So That's one part, and we're addressing that. Um, there's also sort of a cultural part, which is that there's been a perception that you don't necessarily need to look outside of your immediate sphere of, of work or responsibility because the problems you're facing are so local and have so much local context, then there's a limit to what you can learn. And whilst it's certainly true that there are always particular circumstances uh, that require the consideration of local um, factors and context, increasingly the challenges that government, the biggest, hardest challenges that government faces are shared globally. And increasingly the solutions are underpinned by New sorts of business models or approaches, new technology solutions, which are inherently more transferable about across borders. so we we came to apolitical, the space that apolitical is in, excited by the amount of value you can unlock if you enable and speed up peer-to-peer sharing, and sort of bewildered by the the unnecessary barriers that seem to exist. Um, in government, and um, excited by the challenge of unlocking those. So what we've found in terms of dynamics of how it works, public servants generally are very, very willing to share and to go out of their way to invest time and in sharing with others and other countries, even though there's not necessarily a, a get, any gain for them. Um, and I think that partly comes out of the culture of service. It, I think it also comes out of the fact that you know, in government, people aren't typically getting high salaries. And in one of the greatest rewards you can get is seeing your good work, not only implemented in the government in which you work, but um, respected to the degree that it gets implemented elsewhere. So that's a, that's a reward um, that plays to a value our community holds that we've tried to tap. So we, we, make it easy for public servants to tell the stories of what they've worked on, what they've learned, and celebrate them for doing so. And interestingly, there haven't been that many platforms in for government to do that. There are lots of platforms for entrepreneurs to share their work, for civic activists to, to share their work, for um, uh, social innovators to share their work. But people in government haven't had a platform I'll just speak to, there's obviously so much to say on this, but I'll just speak to one other interesting dynamic in government. And I'm particularly talking about the civil service part of government. So these are, they're not the politicians, they're the non-elected officials who make and implement policy based on high-level policy directives and advise political leaders. And traditionally, that part of government has been faceless, Um, And the people in government have always sort of been perceived by the outside as part of a machine. And we believe it's really important in a world where government has been so often unnecessarily criticised and treated as this monolith that is not fit for purpose anymore, to show that government just is made up of lots and lots of people like you and me, the world's largest workforce, people who also you know worried about their kids education and paying their taxes and are trying really hard to make their countries and their cities better so humanizing government and the people who work in it is is one of our great areas of focus
2: thank you and i would like to uh, ask more about the specifically so now we've covered a bit about the ecosystem and you you've sort of zoomed in on uh, your main uh, target audience or users that is uh, civil servants how do you control who is in on your platform uh, would love if if you could talk more about the onboarding and the kind of vetting that you have in place to to make sure that it stays relevant without sort of being too controlling sure and you
0: know this is an area that we ha- we have a lot of sort of internal conflict about and debate about and it's a constant conversation within apolitical we we know that to um, deliver on our mission, which is to make government work better for people on the planet and to revitalize democracy. And I can talk a little bit about what we are doing on the latter through our foundation. That can't just be government alone. Um, you know, government is deeply interwoven into all aspects of our society and economy and touches everyone and can't be successful if it acts in isolation. So, With that sort of big overarching mission in mind, we know that we have to reach outside of government at some point. That said, we feel that government has been historically really neglected and left behind, particularly by innovation and tech. And it's also often poorly understood by the outside. Um, Many people who haven't worked in government or work closely with government have no idea how difficult it actually is given laws and constraints to make a new policy happen. Um, and I, you know, I, I so often meet people who've joined government from the private sector and then like leave a few years later, so humbled and shocked with how how difficult it really is. So we wanted to create a space initially as the starting point, the core of our community, where it was the people in government who understood each other um and felt that it was a, a protected safe space um, where they could candidly share. That said, we have from the beginning allowed some other groups into into the initial community. Those are um, people working with government in nonprofits, in philanthropy, and in academia. So they they were they're sitting very closely with government. We've deliberately not allowed people from the private sector in initially. Mainly that's because, well, we think the private sector interface with government is really critical and it's ripe for innovation and the democratization of access to things like procurement. But it it can be so loaded and delicate with things like lobbying that we just didn't want to go there initially. So that's sort of some, some design principles for the community, at least in this stage of our evolution. Then if we look at Particular, you know, vetting processes. Um, we we have a a database of government email addresses. So from all sorts of government institutions all over the world that we've built up. If you sign up using one of those government email addresses, you will be automatically approved and on the platform. Um, if you can't provide a government email address or choose not to, you have to submit your bio, your LinkedIn. Um, profile, and then there's a human in the loop doing the vetting.
2: Right, interesting. So when you are on the platform, what are the opportunities to sort of emerge from the crowd of civil servants? You know, I'm imagining something like a superstar civil servant that grow on the platform. Do you see this happening, or or how is it working internally? Uh, yeah, there definitely
0: um, influences in in the um, the civil service, the wider public service. So the, the primary modality on our platform is sharing ideas through um, written content. So we give guidelines to our members about how to communicate policy or organizational ideas in a way that is digestible, um, succinct, relevant to other public service. So we sort of provide design support around the content creative pro- creation process, and then we provide a light editorial layer. We're actually looking right now at ways Um, to enable scale that allow us to delegate that editorial amongst members, trusted members of the community who've shown that they can edit. So we can dramatically increase the volume of content on the platform while still keeping the quality high. So sharing content is a big part of it. Um, And that's the majority of engagement, day-to-day engagement on the platform. And some of these... Pieces of content go very viral. I mean, we there was an amazing, um, amazing piece coming out of New Zealand on how New Zealand is piloting making all its laws machine compatible, so that it's much, much easier for one of the consequences. For example, is a small company without inter- legal intermediaries can read how laws are changing and understand their implications. Another one is if all your laws are machine readable, it's much easier to forecast the impacts of policy because you know how a complex network of laws might interact and the consequences of a proposed policy. So that could potentially avoid a lot, either bad policy mistakes or um, unnecessary spend. So really exciting pioneering um, idea in government. And that, you know, that was read by thousands and thousands of people all over the world. And The person who was featured in it, I believe, spoke to a number of people who had read about it. So you get stuff that gets real traction. And then we also have um, members on the platform who have contributed multiple pieces. Um, uh, You know, obviously, that depends on your role. Some people are in a role that makes it easier for them to contribute fresh ideas. But we encourage that as much as possible. And um, we share and promote stuff that we know is going to be especially useful for our community. We also have a lot of live conversations um, on, on Zoom or Microsoft Teams, but and particularly in 2020, with the demand or people, people at home, so wanting more connection, working from home and wanting connection, and the um the rapidity at which changes were happening and problems were surfacing. And solutions were bubbling up in response to those problems. Live conversations became especially valuable. And I think we had something like it was 67 or 69 webinars in 2020 to which more than 60,000 people signed up, 60,000 public servants. So there's also huge appetite for those conversations. And often um, there's, a, there's a particular dynamic on webinars where i think because because stuff is not written down and although we record them because it's not like it doesn't have the gravity of writing a whole article or insight there's just a lot of free-flowing sharing which is often very valuable we also see a dynamic in webinars which is particularly moving and um, makes us very proud where you see how lonely people feel and how um gratified they are to be connected to others working on similar challenges and to be heard one of the features of being a public servant is you know you you perhaps more than many sectors you spend a lot of time because it's so complex to make things happen a lot of time working on these big projects that can matter so much and sometimes they don't work out sometimes you invest you know half a decade a decade of your life and for for public servants to be heard by others who facing those similar constraints is is very powerful
1: so my question in you know kind of um, as a kind of as a turn a little bit from the conversation we are having uh, now which is more into how you facilitate, you know, this community of, uh, and how this community is interacting with each other around uh, new possibilities, new narratives, new content. Uh, my question is a bit more into something that you shared in the first, uh, in the first uh, question, when you said that um, the public sector is a particular sector where basically you don't have this competition. No, so so it's strange to see that, uh, for example, there is not so much sharing. But I want to piggyback on this idea of uh, the government uh, sector having no competition to, uh, you know, nudge you into a, a reflection and sharing maybe some of the cases that you have been maybe you have been encountering in, uh, during the years. So my my point is, uh, we are seeing to some extent uh, a moment where it looks much more clear now that the the government sector needs to as well change model. so we have been used to to see this happening in corporates and. Now, companies have been pushed to change their business models, for example, into more networked ones or more, I would say, uh, departing from the industrial idea of a corporation. And so my question is, um, how do we depart from the industrial idea or from the institutional idea of the government uh, into the age of platforms? And to make it more practical, uh, now, for example, in Italy, if I refer to something that I'm uh, witnessing firsthand, I would say, Uh, we are seeing uh, the debate around the next generation fund in in the EU, which is a massive amount of money dedicated to essentially investing into sustainability or care or care economies and much, much more infrastructure. So we have a debate uh, in these very days um, uh, between uh, certain political forces that are... uh, I would say uh, re, um, in, uh, reinforcing the idea that the parliaments and, uh, you know, bureaucracy, the government bureaucracy needs to be uh, driving these uh, the, the the implementation of these funds you no know, the the, the uh, deployment of these funds and on the other hand we have this uh, dpm that is pushing towards a more like a management structure you no know? so so he's talking about uh, essentially three layers and you have the 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 the, the these three, three layers of management that should be uh, supposed to be the ones that oversee the deployment of these funds and what i'm what i want to say with this, essentially i'm 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 um, I'm pushing towards a reflection uh, from your side in what you see in this transition between the institutional age government into this kind of uh, technocracy, industrial version that our PM in Italy is pushing now, and all these management structures that are more inspired from the corporate sector, for example, that I think is a, is a shared pro- uh, pattern also outside of Italy, of course, Uh, And uh, what I um, uh, believe is actually the the future where we should go, which is a more complex, complexity-friendly way uh, to play the government role. And essentially, I'm I'm referring to uh, more overlaps between private, uh, public, uh, citizen-led. So often I I, I use this uh, sentence, you know, I used to call it uh, the age of overlaps, the age that we live, you know, because technology has been breaking so many barriers and and so my question for you would be: Do you see this process happening? So this transition from maybe the 18th century version of the government into the, the uh, 20th century version, which is the industrial government, and now into the 21st century version that seems to be much more requiring much more complexity, friendliness. And do you see these social uh, movements, these social innovations in your in your ecosystem coming up uh, more from the citizen-led perspective than the traditional government's uh, top-down strategies?
0: Well, there's a lot in this question, and I'm going to come at it in a few ways. So I think the first thing to say is, is to pick up on where you started off with the point about government having no competition. Governments don't have competition between one another, but they do have a kind of internal competition, which is that The alternative to government is government not being valued and being trashed, and we are seeing that in many liberal democracies where there is diminishing faith in government and and a rising in its place of populist leaders who don't respect the institutions. So government does have a sort of existential competition, which is that if it's not delivering for citizens, if it's not... um, meriting trust and growing trust there is nothing to guarantee it's going to stay as we assume it will and i think the last few years have taught us that in in you know many of many of the biggest democracies that it's much more vulnerable than we think and we've assumed and i think where where there is the kind of innovation that you're speaking to which is hard innovation um because it's a really quite fundamental change, you know, very citizen led government Where they, where we're seeing more of that and we need to see even more than we are. A lot of it is going to come from governments realizing they are in existential jeopardy if they don't do things differently, if they don't rebuild trust with societies that increasingly aren't valuing democracy as much. I mean, you've, you've probably seen the horrifying figures of the diminishing, um, faith that young people have in the necessity of democratic leaders and the increasing belief that maybe it's just easier if you have an autocratic leader that can get things done. So because people are so frustrated at things not being done, that they would trade in democracy to make things happen quickly. That's sort of one simple interpretation of one layer of, of that sentiment. But I do think, I think this, um, this existential pressure is going to accelerate openness to to innovation that's quite hard. I would just think one now taking a slight step back and I'll come back to that citizen-led innovation. But I think it's really important not to um, not to draw too many parallels between the trajectory of corporations and the trajectory of government. First of all, I think government historically, if we look back to the 1950s, 60s, 70s, before the the corporation and capitalism became such a a powerful um, narrative and and magnet for talent. Government was understood in a way and did some stuff that is useful to preserve and not throw out. So, for example, it attracted. It was seen as prestigious. It attracted some of the smartest people. Um, from top universities. It was seen as a place that you could make a real difference. It it was um, the fact that government invested in early stage research and science and put lots of money behind infrastructure that wouldn't necessarily be needed immediately, but might be needed in certain circumstances. Things like healthcare. The government had a lot more license to do that a lot more license from society to do that prior to the the 1970s onwards, where there was this shift to believing that the corporation could basically deliver better on almost everything, and government was you know at, at best a necessary evil and you know at worst undermining our society's ability for for innovation and, and progress. Um, so I just don't I don't want to couple corporate the institution of of corporations with the institution of government too closely, although there are parallels. And I do think um, the move to more open systems and platforms is a relevant one for both. Back to um, the question around what's happening now. I mean, technology is a huge accelerant for some of the best and worst things that are happening, right, on the... We don't need to spend much time on the worst things, but you know think um misleading information, um distorted views of truth uh, and undermining you know necessarily good things for society. all of those are obviously accelerated by technology and often at huge cost. But what we're seeing around citizens having um voices that are heard. More widely can be heard faster, um, can be acted on um, more rapidly. That that is very very powerful, and um, in some places it's very unevenly distributed. But when seeing um, the power of of the voices of citizens in cleverly designed systems, so in in Reykjavik, I think something like fifty percent of People have participated in making policy, which is, you know, incredibly empowering and, and as it should be for government. One's seen an extraordinary explosion of participatory budgeting, which was um, first pioneered in Brazil. It's now in more than 2,000 locations around the world. You know, Paris allocates a bunch of its budget according to how citizens want to spend it. It's been used to great success in um, a number of places. So there's a lot, of, a lot of innovation around communities that's been enabled by technology, which is very positive and I think just needs more, more visibility um, because it's, not, its lack of wider adoption is, is not really anything to do with a fault of it. It's just its, it's habit change and, and culture change
1: right um you know it looks like there are two directions where I would like to ask you to explore because you also wrote this uh, amazing post you know, recently where you uh, shared uh, what governments can learn from Amazon in terms of for example being able to to think about flywheels and you know technologies and 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 so on so it looks like there is a layer of this conversation which sees, uh, governments embracing, you know, growth uh, data and technologies to maybe, as you just said, uh, write better policies, uh, maybe by leveraging on data, that's another very important point you know that we have been discussing in the past, for example, now also to regulate uh, policymakers really need to look into the data because it doesn't, you know, uh, I think Benedict Evans a few days ago, released this podcast when he said, basically, you know now the the metrics of saying something is a monopoly doesn't really help uh, anymore to, to regulate it and also because you really need to look into the impacts that these monopolies are having on people's life so i think uh, there is a, a layer of this conversation which uh, uh, relates to how do you build a digital native government i would say you no know, digital first government that can use uh, data and technology to regulate, to leverage on the citizens' voices, for example, in participatory budgeting or policies that uh, uh, can leverage on the wisdom of these crowds. Or, or you know, in the, in, in our paper, we also spoke about SALUSCOP, you know, that is this, this uh, Spanish experiment, uh, uh, you know, um, collecting health-related data and putting them in, in the hands of the citizens to, to generate more collective policies around uh, this very sensitive data. So that's one point. Um, but then, then, then there is another layer that, uh, I'm, I'm talking about, which is, uh, essentially the entrepreneurial layer. So, uh, you're right that we don't need to draw too many parallels between the corporation and the government. Um, but the question is, how do you transition towards, a government, uh, process or governing process that is much more, um, where there is much more skin in the game, you know, because, uh, Essentially, this is, I think, uh, what uh, this new disruptive technologies. So, for example, the, the blockchain technology, or um, you know, other uh, uh, technologies that allow d- collective decision making. For example, or or designing financial I- instruments to for citizens to co-invest into something new in terms of you know, micro infrastructure. For example, now, I'm thinking about energy, or or, or even food production or 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 um, environmental regeneration all these things that uh, uh, entail uh, a radical uh, entrepreneurial spirit and, and a lot of skin in the game possibly investments uh, that uh, you know require the citizen to really become uh, participants in the management management of the of the public uh, public uh, property or in general their, their, their future uh, so, these are the two directions, so my question for you, just as a recap, is do you see a political mission also getting into that? So, also getting into essentially, for example, producing technology that can um, uh, allow these processes to happen or even at some point aggregating supply and demand, you know, like a, a real aggregator's platforms do. So. Do you see you guys stepping into, uh, uh, your, your company, your uh, a political, spe- stepping into this space? It's moving into producing processes, technologies, or, or, or even integrating them into enabling a much more te- technology-capable government form, or even a much more entrepreneurial, citizen-led, government-facilitated uh, deployment of the economy?
0: I just want to begin by being... <laughs> A bit of a politician and and not starting by not answering the question, I will come to the question, but you referenced the article I wrote on on Amazon and what governments can learn from amazon, and there there is a lot on technology and i'll I'll speak to that, but the real lesson that I think is most important is to think about government and democracy as a system. If you hear someone who's angry about government not serving us they'll tend to like point to something they'll say this is so broken that's so broken and it's true that different aspects are broken but there is no one fix Um, it's a very complex system that um, I think can be seen as a flywheel where you have to have these interacting parts which are politicians informed politicians elected in free and fair elections so that's one critical part a an informed, connected civil service making and implementing good policy that delivers on the reasons that citizens elected those politicians, and then an informed uh, population that values and um, participates in democracy. And the great thing about flywheels is they're self-reinforcing. So if you improve any one piece of that loop, the whole loop strengthens and it speeds up. The Achilles heel of flywheels is if any one of those, the citizens, the politicians, or the civil service, are impeded in any way, the flywheel slows down and democracy gets in trouble. And I think that's one of the reasons where why um, it seems so strange that governments in so much peril recently But in fact, that flywheel has been slowing down for a long time because we've neglected all of those different components in different ways. And we have to reinvest across the board in different ways. And we have to also invest in the medium in which that flywheel exists, which is accurate and free-flowing information. So so that, to me, is the biggest lesson for, for government from these very powerful tech companies who figured out these incredibly powerful reinforcing flywheels that become unstoppable, seemingly unstoppable forces. So just to transition to your your question on on technologies, absolutely this is a role we we want to help facilitate. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but my view on how government should approach this there's there's a there's a wonderful um Child psychologist called Alison Gopnik, who's written a famous book. um, I have a two-year-old, so I'm very interested in this famous book called the The Carpenter and the Gardener, about parenting. And the basic thesis is that many parents set out trying to be carpenters to to um, create children in exactly the image they want, and the much better way to allow for people to be to see their potential and for innovation to happen in society um and for generational change is to to be gardeners. So you create the conditions where individuality can flourish, people can find their own way. This is obviously in the context of children. But I think there's something to be learnt by government. Government shouldn't be prescriptive. It shouldn't be saying this is how it's done it's not set up to and shouldn't be set up to generate those original innovations it should be it should play a convening role it should be watering what's what exists and what has potential and then being very v- vigilant and uh, adopting and accelerating in different ways what's working so it needs to think of itself in that that gardening role i think some of that can be done through smart regulatory infrastructure It's obviously huge opportunities there around addressing tech monopoly challenges and so forth. It can do a lot around the news environment and um, regulating misinformation and supporting smart ways to deal with that. And then it's about how do you make the interface between government and the more grassroots led innovations um, more porous? And that's something in apolitical we're we're very interested in doing. So finding a way to give visibility to innovations that wouldn't normally cross government's path so that early on they can get the support they need. One of the, you know, I think big travesties of government is you have a a procurement budget that in most countries is around 10% or more of GDP. So it's circa $8 trillion a year. Been spent by government procuring services largely from the private sector. And an embarrassing proportion of that goes to the most giant companies when that money could be spent much more creatively and sort of constructively for society on smaller ventures, whether for-profits or non-profits, on greener ventures and so forth. It could, it, it could, the procurement dollars could play a much greater role in policy outcomes than they do And finding ways to um, facilitate that through the right sort of visibility is something we're very, very interested in doing. One just has to be always mindful of the fact that government has to be unbiased and there has to be due process and fair evaluation of different solutions. So we have to build that in such a way that we don't in any way prioritize some people over others. So there's some very particular design considerations when you're working with government, but absolutely super exciting area that we want to um we want to try and facilitate. and there there's some interesting sort of analog examples happening already. Um, Boston, which is seen as has been innovative in a number of ways, has as uh, I think they describe it as office hours for startups, so they make it really easy for, small organizations to come to them and talk to the city about what they're doing and i think that's a that's a principle that we want to uh, at some point unlock at scale
1: right that sounds very interesting and let me highlight some more uh, for our listeners uh, um so so what i get from your answer is that you guys are looking into essentially for example uh, aggregating suppliers and you know, across regions uh, or at least uh, locally, partially, uh, so that many, maybe government uh, uh, players can uh, have uh, efficiencies in purchasing, for example. That's a very clear uh, use case. So it's a ag- supply aggregation, I would say, move that should come, of course, with some kind of technology, then marketplace that allows... Uh, that's, that's very interesting. And so I just wanted to highlight this for our... Listeners, because, for example, they will uh, you know, they will see similar trends uh, in in uh, all the contexts. You know? So this supply aggregation potential is really interesting. I, I believe, although maybe you know, also as a quick follow up reflection, uh, uh, and then I will leave it to Stina for for another question on, on the topic. Uh, we're also seeing more and more regional fragmentation, and you know? also it's also another challenge to to see how we can. Uh, 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 you know, drive those efficiencies in a world that on the other hand, from a digital perspective, especially if I think about digital policies like the GDPR or, or something like that, it's really going into more regional fragmentation than ever. So uh, I think we are seeing a world that from the digital standpoint, uh, we have been dreaming about this uh, global village uh but it's not you know so in reality it's fairly fragmented and and but you you know these kind of challenges make make your reflection even more interesting how do you build something that maybe can go across those fragments you know and allow this uh to happen uh, across regions so really interesting stuff
0: yeah can i just comment on the on the the global village point which i think is it's a really hard one and a really interesting area right now so I think part of the problem with it is it was, it was too generic. It was seen as just a sort of unchallenged good that we were a global village instead of a more nuanced view, which would have been there are some areas where it pays to be a global village. And there's some areas where um, the cost is perhaps too high, and we need to dial things down. And the risk now is that we overcorrect in the other direction where we realise all the problems with the the global village approach or what or what doesn't work and then we we throw out the stuff that necessarily should be global. And I do think with with some of these these fragmented regulations, this absolutely is what what's happening. But I think we're gonna have to see another correction because you cannot you cannot successfully do some of this regulation. And control of of things like data of corporate behavior, unless there's a united approach. So I just think we need a more discerning um approach to the global village.
1: Mm-hmm. That uh, resonates a lot with some of the considerations we also did in the in the paper. Now, where in in our chapter um, uh, two, if I'm wrong. Uh, when we talk about risk, you know, we, we underline this tendency to towards uh, strategic disconnection, or you know, this idea of strategic disconnection that is taking a lot of ground, especially in the U.S., but in general, um, you know, Jack Murphy uh, has this idea, but essentially the idea that uh, localities can become less uh, uh, prone to risk if they actually disconnect from the global discourse. And uh, not just in terms of conversations, but also in terms of, uh, you know, processes and investments and, and infrastructures. So I think uh, this is a challenge that you, we have. And I, I really resonate with your point that uh, we should hope probably from a certain uh, rebound towards uh, a more genuine and more, uh, I would say, conscious and more uh, informed uh, discussion about global uh, global. Uh, trends you know and to some extent that this also reconnects with uh, uh, the the question on on moving from the globalization to the, the terrestrial you know that the Latour uh, has been pushing us to reflect about so so that's that was very interesting thanks very much
0: just one other comment on the on the marketplace of solutions which we're very excited about developing in the in the medium to long term i do think that can extend beyond solutions in the sense of things that can be implemented and i think there's, there's a lot of opportunity around a marketplace for ideas as well and just making um, more porous conversations when government has a problem, helping facilitate people coming forward with solutions. And that's, again, it's, again, an area we're interested in in principle. But I think those direct conversations between government and citizens, we're still just at the very fo- foothills of what we can do in terms of unlocking value from them.
2: Yeah, that's really exciting. I wanted to zoom in exactly on that, actually, a little bit. So, you know, we talk about in platform design to design for disobedience. So it comes back to what you were mentioning about the carpenter and the gardener. Uh, and it's something that is quite hard for for governments to do because they are, um, they have a different relationship with risk. And like you mentioned in public procurement, a set of constraints that, you um, somehow, you know, you can see us hampering innovation to a certain extent. So I don't know if you've seen, you know, what are the, the, the rebels in your, in your network and how do they get around certain constraints that might, um, you know, hinder uh, some areas of innovation that could be, you know, not huge risk areas. But of course, this what you're mentioning, uh, citizen involvement could maybe be an area where you should have more innovation.
0: One of the defining features of a lot of
2: the the rebels or or innovators
0: or disruptors, whatever you want to call them, that, that we see being successful in government, is they often um, come from outside of government, and they look around them in bewilderment, jaws open, and say, "Why are things done like this?" And that leads them to to question a status quo and. One of the most interesting consequences of that questioning is that often what they find is that the barriers aren't legal. It's often a perception that all these barriers are are legal, preventing things, preventing people doing more in government. But often they're cultural. And if you are willing, and it's always easier as an outsider who's feeling a degree of sort of outrage at at a, a, what they perceive to be a silly system, if you're willing to just bulldoze through those um those cult sort of ephemeral cultural barriers then um you can get a great deal done so it's often just that ability to to take risks um to make stuff happen and to slightly like do an emperor's no clothes number and just call out the fact that hey technically there's nothing stopping us from doing this so we could go ahead and do it um, obviously there are very real consequences potentially at the end of that if you if you are seen to have badly screwed up you know and it gets out to the public you you can be held accountable sometimes correctly sometimes you know incorrectly for taking taking risks um so even if there's no legal barrier there there can be negative consequences and very negative incentives for trying new things um but i do think Increasingly, governments, even if they don't always implement as well as they should, there's a, there's an awareness of the need for sandboxes and communities of people who are approaching things differently um, and are acting from a place of like real curiosity and passion. Canada, for instance, has this really thoughtful program called Free Agents, which encourages talented people to choose the part of government they want to work in and then go and make things happen in that department. So it's much more um, empowering for, for the individual. And um, I think that's a much more constructive foundation for innovation than a lot of historic structures where you're, you know, you're told where to go and you're told to sort of work with the system you've got.
2: Yeah, that comes back to the skin in the game that uh, Simona was mentioning. So you can provide that in a different way than than maybe through ownership, but you have ownership because you choose a certain place. Um, it sounds like, and um, just as maybe heading a little bit towards the end of uh, of the conversation, you are obviously providing one of these spaces that you you were mentioning as well. Without being <laughs> humble about your amazing community. To what extent are you enabling a disobedience within, you know, within the confines of your community? Have you seen someone do things that you didn't expect, that you didn't even think that you would allow and that made you change your mind? Um, and that's one part of my question. And the other one is maybe, you know, looking into the future. What are your dreams, ambitions, plans, uh, projects that you you would like to highlight? So the lines, the lines
0: that we draw, the inviolable lines at apolitical are around trying not to politicize issues. Um, Now, at some, at one level, this is impossible, because everything can be politicized. But we, we believe really passionately in, in conversation that respects different views in having, if we're going to allow someone to speak to one side of an argument, we should allow a voice on the other side as well. And our constraints around, or and our, or rather our guides around how to write stuff always speaks to, you know, not, not overly politicizing stuff, talking about the outcomes for citizens rather than any ideology that might be associated with the policy, etc. Um, in terms of disobedience, I wouldn't, I mean, the standard for for disobedience in government compared to other sectors is it's quite a low bar. So what would sometimes be considered where public servants often feel they, they taking a risk on us is just by speaking very candidly about hard problems, because often these problems haven't, haven't been shared. Um, And that's something we are, you know, provided it doesn't jeopardize trust or confidences or, take an idea into very political territory, we, we're we really pleased to encourage that, um, and excited to facilitate it. As for our plans, we um, have very big ones, they're there at least 200 million public servants globally. Um, those people collectively are responsible for allocating approximately 40% of GDP each year. So well north of $30 trillion. So and that's just the direct impact they have, and obviously indirectly through the laws that they make and implement, they have enormous impact. So it is potentially one of it's probably the world's most powerful community of purpose that you get if you just look at the, the levers they can pull. So we want to be serving them at scale. And given they in the hundreds of millions, that means we need to be serving at least tens of millions of public servants to really make an impact. Um, We want to see policies shared, good policies shared much faster. Mistakes learned much faster. Gains for society delivered much faster. Those are sort of the direct effects of once you lubricate policy sharing and exchange and the indirect ones, but Perhaps even more powerful are we want to help change the narrative around government and show that there are great people working in the public sector who are incredibly purpose-driven, attract more great people to work there, improve the morale of people in the public sector because they've been recognised and they feel a sense of community. Because if you, if you change the shift of talent, if you make it easier to attract talented people to government and easier to keep them there. The dividends for society are practically unlimited. So that's that's an area that we find incredibly exciting. We also are building up a very unique data set on government, which we call the GovGraph. So that's information on the people in government, the problems they're facing, the trends, um, how money is spent. This is built up both through content generated on our platform, and also content we're we're scraping from around the internet that's open, um, it's open source and available, and putting it in one place where it can be easily queried and understood. So we want to be a one-stop shop for public servants to understand what's happening in their their governments and how to solve problems fast and better. But that data set can also be deploy- deployed in all sorts of ways, creating tools for citizens potentially creating tools for um, the private sector and that places an enormously important stewardship responsibility on us um, if we are if we are governing all this data to be um, of the highest integrity with regard to our users we can't ever we certainly don't want to and we couldn't afford to lose the trust of the public servants on our platform but used in the right way that data can be very very powerful so that's that's sort of something that is it's growing in the background that will enable us to do things that in some cases we can foresee and in other cases we just can't foresee yet but um is tremendously exciting and then adjacent to the work on the civil service in particular we have politicians using our platform but the majority of our members are are civil servants. We have a foundation. So our company is a B Corp. Um, it's a mission-driven for-profit company. The company has given stock to a non-profit foundation, which is focused specifically on democracy, stuff that's hard to do in a, a for-profit modality without creating um, conflicts or unintended outcomes. And the flagship work of of the Apolitical Foundation is something called the Apolitical Academy, which is ha- um, programs helping new leaders get into politics. So we we currently have programs. We have one in um, Sweden, one in South Africa, um, a global one run in partnership with the World Economic Forum, and we have a whole pipeline that we about to um, get started elsewhere in the world and. For each of these programs, whereas our platform is is very high-tech, these programs are high-touch, and we select high-potential leaders from across the political spectrum, deliberately from across the political spectrum, who represent accurately the society in which they are seeking to serve. And we help them think about how to run to office, how to build networks, how to govern once you're in office. Often your only qualifications get into office are you ran a successful campaign and a lot of new politicians know nothing about policy and actually governing so we wanted to to, um, create much better pipelines into government and as part of that also help change the narrative around democracy make it prestigious again to run for political office um, make it clear that you don't have to be a dodgy politician in order to um, succeed in political office. That there are alternative pathways. So that's another um, great passion of ours, and it links back to the multifaceted nature of the democracy flywheel I talked about. Um, I'll just I'll just um, stop by mentioning the third part of the flywheel, which we haven't really talked about, which is citizens or people, v- voters informing informing voters, and we would like to use some of the technology we're building in the company around training and online learning in very engaging, bite-sized ways, um, and deploy that to do civic education as well for, for people who don't understand their governments um, as well as they could or should. Because if, if there's a, a big gap of, you know, we talk a lot about um, governments not understanding citizens, and that's totally true and needs to be fixed. And some of the um, the approaches we've talked about, like participatory budgeting and, and all these citizen engagement technologies are, are doing a lot on that front. But equally, we need to find ways for people to better understand their governments, because if you don't understand, you can't, you can't know what criticism is merited, what criticism isn't, what's possible, what's not. So creating bridges between the two in all sorts of ways is a, um, a huge passion
1: of arts right i mean you seem to point to a future for this um, context where uh, there's much more responsibility to to be taken no so from all the perspectives so from the perspective of the government but also from the perspective of the citizens and to some yeah. extent also from the perspective of the public sector uh, the private sector no that uh, that is um, apparently a very I would say that uh, a very underestimated, has a very underestimated role in uh, deploy public policy and public choices uh, than most of the people tend to think about in terms of uh, the involvement that private uh, companies have in making policies happen. Actually, you know, and, and deploying policies. So, if you can just, uh, if I can just ask you to um, uh, finish uh, with uh, two things. First of all, to share. Uh, the thing that mostly excites you about this future that you're talking about in a few words, and then maybe you can just help our listeners to uh, find you online, where should should they look? Especially I'm, think, talk, I'm thinking about, on one hand, citizens, but also on the other hand, of course, uh, public servants that want to be more informed about what the political is doing.
0: What excites me is that um, in so many of the most important Challenges we face with regard to these challenges, we know what to do. We have the technological solutions. Increasingly, if you take something like climate, we have the political will, and it's it's often just that our systems and a lack of coordination within the systems are letting us down. So there is so much opportunity through making governments more connected internally and more connected externally to solve problems stuff that doesn't require new solutions and that makes me incredibly excited and there's so much goodwill waiting to be tapped and then so much innovation on the horizon that we don't even we haven't even yet sort of quantified or factored in that can that stands to improve things i'm also excited because this is a pivotal moment um a little scared by it too i think democracy has never in recent times been in more peril and we're running out of time to fix it and to shift trust back to government to cultivate value placed in democracy again if we get that right we can reinvent it along the way make it much closer to citizens much more responsive to them and much better so there's a huge prize and there's also huge jeopardy if we don't uh, we we risk a, a real reversal of um, so many of the things we hold dear. So that that's a kind of adrenaline sort of excitement with very high stakes, which um, motivates um, a lot of uh, my energy. In terms of finding out more about us, um, uh, visit visit um, apolitical co, and you can. Uh, find out how to sign up if you're a public servant or you work closely with government. Um, you can also follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is apoliticalco, or one word. And there, even if you're not in working closely with government, so you wouldn't yet qualify for our network, we share lots of great content, which you can click through to and read on a, on a case-by-case basis. If you visit the website, you can also um, click through to information on our foundation and learn more about our work specifically on democracy
1: thank you thank you very much that was a very interesting conversation i think uh maybe we're gonna uh, get back to you in the following uh, months maybe to compare notes again uh, about the progress of what seems to be on your uh notepad of ideas it seems a very exciting moment for a political in general and we really support uh, your your mission i think so uh, really looking forward to catch uh, uh, and to catch uh, catch up again and compare notes. So thanks for the insights. I'm, I'm sure that our listeners, uh, um, you know, will will have uh, lots of to lots to think through after this conversation. Stina, something that you want to add?
2: No, just uh, thank you very much. This has been a very conversation that I've been really keen on, especially considering that I've worked uh, for a big part of my. Uh, career in, in public policy myself and uh, really excited about the uh, things you shared and um, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks so much and uh, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valtemobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.